As we continue our verse-by-verse and passage-by-passage study through the Gospel of John, let's turn again to John chapter 8. We are studying the last section of this dialogue that we have been following throughout the chapter. And this passage that we come to tonight is so grievous and yet so glorious that I'm really hesitant to comment on it tonight, lest I diminish the grievousness that Jesus is experiencing or the glory of who he is with human words. And I truly do pray tonight that the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes of our hearts and that it's his words that you hear tonight and not my words. It's his revelation and not my commentary. Let's look at this passage. It begins with verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaim, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. There are two key statements that we find in this passage. One is in verse 53, when the Jews say to him, Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you think you are? And the words of Jesus in verse 58, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now this continuing dialogue that we have been looking at here in chapter 8 began with a messianic claim by Jesus. I am the light of the world. It ends with a deity claim. And ironically, it's not only a moment of 
revelation regarding the divine nature that is veiled in the humanity of Jesus. But it also reveals the nature of the listeners as they pick up stones intending to kill Jesus. And thus they prove by their actions, as Jesus said earlier, that God is truly not their father and that they are carrying out the desires of the devil. Now, as we read this passage, you could see the flow of dialogue here. The Jews make an accusation and Jesus defends. They make a second accusation. Jesus defends again. They make a third accusation And then Jesus speaks his word of revelation. Now, again, this dialogue began with a rebuttal of the Jews to the words of Jesus, I am the light of the world. And Jesus responded in defense. But we saw as this dialogue went along that it was Jesus, like a cross-examining defense attorney who was putting the Jews in a place where they were defensively trying to justify their legitimacy. Jesus never truly needs to defend himself. And he certainly is never defensive when he speaks. Rather, when he speaks in defense, It is apologetically a systematic, argumentative discourse in defense of truth. And that's how we see Jesus presenting his defenses, not defensively against their statements, against their accusations, against their derogatory and inflammatory words, but rather as one who is systematically setting before them a defense of the truth of God and of he as the one who has come to reveal God. In this final dialogue, the Jews hurl personal accusations against Jesus, questioning his credibility in the most derogatory and inflammatory words. Jesus does not react to their invective. But instead, instead he brilliantly uses each segment of this conversation for what will be his revelatory coup de grace. Before Abraham was, I am. So let's look at the flow of this passage. The accusations of the Jews and the defense of Jesus. And it begins in verse 48 with a demeaning attack on Jesus. Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? The New Living Translation reads like this, you Samaritan devil, Didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? Think of how demeaning those words are. You Samaritan devil. They had already declared back in 
chapter 7 and verse 20 that Jesus was demon-possessed. Later on in chapter 10 and verse 20, they will again declare that Jesus is demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to him? The Jews considered the Samaritans to be heretics. And Samaria was also known as a hotbed of sorcery. In Acts chapter 8, we see Philip going down to Samaria to preach the gospel, and there he will confront a renowned sorcerer by the name of Simon Magus. And in essence, they were saying to Jesus, you say we aren't Abraham's children? We say you're a Samaritan. You say that we are children of the devil? Well, we say that you are demon-possessed. The interesting thing is that in accusing Jesus of blasphemy, they themselves, by the words that they used, were committing the most egregious blasphemy against God, the one and only Son who came from the Father. Let us learn a lesson here that we need to guard our words that we need to speak carefully and that we never speak flippantly, especially about things that are divine and of which we as finite human beings can perceive and comprehend so little. Jesus responded to them. His response is interesting because he doesn't deny that he's a Samaritan. Now, Jesus is a Jew and not a Samaritan. He is, as he declared, in the beginning of this entire dialogue, the light of the world, and whoever comes to me will never walk in darkness. And he's already been in Samaria. He's already extended himself as the water of life to those who are thirsty. And he has already been embraced by the Samaritans as their Savior and their Lord. And so he doesn't deny that he's a Samaritan. He came to identify with everyone. But he does respond to say that he is not demon-possessed. And we see in this passage Jesus' honor rebuttal. His honor rebuttal. And he responds to them, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And then he made a statement. Now, this would most properly read, Amen and amen, I am telling you something very important. In our King James Bibles, it reads, Verily, verily. In our NIV, it reads, I'm telling you the truth. But to be most emphatic and most literal with the with the original, this is really a double amen. In the original Greek, it is amen, amen, and then underscored, I am telling you something very important. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. Now this is actually the second of three double amens in this passage here in John chapter 8. Two in this section that we are looking at 
tonight. Remember the words that Jesus spoke back in John chapter 5 when he had healed the paralyzed man at the pool. And the Jews wanted to kill him because in his response, he was making himself equal with God. And once again, Jesus defended himself, not defensively, but apologetically, a defense of the truth. And in John chapter 5 and verse 23, he said, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And so, by the same token, Jesus says here, I honor my Father. And because I honor my Father and you do not honor me, then you're not actually honoring the Father at all. Speaking of honor, Jesus goes on to say, I am not seeking glory or I'm not seeking honor for myself. But there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In the Gospel of John, the cross is the glorification of Jesus, unparalleled. And in Jesus carrying the cross, the church and the world have witnessed the greatest glorification that anyone could ever render to God. Once again, in the Gospel of John, the cross is the glorification of Jesus. It was the most glorious thing that the Father could accomplish through the Son. And it was the most glorifying thing that the Son could do to honor the Father. There are two cross truths that we see. The cross on one hand says to us doctrinally, this is how much God loves you. And the cross on the other hand, by the example of Jesus, says to us ethically that God wants us to live the same sacrificial life. We think of the words of the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Galatians, after having defended the gospel of grace against the attacks, the diminishing attacks that it had come under, he declared these words, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Jesus often spoke about his hour, his hour of glory was going to come. He would pray there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, glorify me, for I have glorified you. And on the cross, Jesus's greatest moment of glorification would be revealed. The world would not understand it. The preaching of the cross, Paul said to the Corinthians, is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But for all who believe, hallelujah, it is the power of God that brings salvation to us. 
Praise God. And then Jesus makes this promise, this truth statement. Amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. If anyone keeps my special word, he will never see death, ever. Now, this is a very interesting statement as it's constructed in the Greek and the way that Jesus speaks it. In essence, it reads like this. If anyone keeps the my word, that's rather awkward for us in our English language. And so it's best if we translate that my special word. If anyone keeps my special word, that person will never once see death forever into the ages. See, this is one of the reasons why we say that it's difficult for us to translate the original into our English language because there is so many more words that are used in the English language where we would have just one English word. And the meaning is much broader and much richer. If anyone keeps my special word, that person will never once see death forever into the ages. Hallelujah. What a promise of eternal life. When one accepts the invitation that Jesus gave earlier in this chapter to make his home in the word of Jesus, and when one keeps accepting the invitation that he has been making, to continuously trust in him, trust in him, trust in him. Death becomes irrelevant. It is replaced with such an assurance of eternal life. And that really is a picture of how we walk. We, we accept the word of Jesus, but we need to do more than just accept it. It needs to be more than just our amen. For the word of Jesus is far weightier and far more significant than any amen that we speak when we are in church and we respond to something that's been said. And if we truly make our home in his word, it's where we reside, we delight in it, it's more important to us and has greater value to us than anyone who is seeking riches. We, we don't neglect it, but we immerse ourselves in it and we saturate ourselves. Because again, remember that to love the word is to love Jesus. To spend time in the word is to spend time with Jesus. But then we also need to keep on trusting. There's never a moment when we don't need to keep on trusting. We are human and questions come and circumstances come. And even the Apostle Paul, when tormented with a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh, prayed three times that God would take it away from him. But then God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. So the Apostle Paul then said, so I will glory in my weakness so that the power of God may be manifested in me. And so as we go through life and we face difficulties and 
we are confronted with challenges. There is the need to keep trusting. And we could even say on the other side when there are no challenges and life is easy. What a temptation that is for us to just enjoy life rather than seeking Jesus with all of our hearts. But as we keep trusting him and trusting him and trusting the word that he has spoken to us begins to fill our hearts with such assurance and such faith that like the Apostle Paul, we're no longer shaken by our circumstances. They no longer are to us something that we can't wait to get out of, but rather we are experiencing life and glory and blessing and the presence of Jesus. One of my Wednesday prayer partners and partners for transformation is a blind woman by the name of Sharon. Sharon's 66, her father is 97, and he contracted COVID-19. and So he has been sick now for several months. And he has been witnessing and sharing Jesus with the nurses and those who are taking care of him. And he's just been wanting to go to heaven. And he would express that to his daughter. I just want to go to heaven. I just want to be with Jesus. So today I asked her, how is your dad doing? And she said, well, he just so much wants to go to be with Jesus, but he's still hanging on. And so while he's hanging on, he's still telling people about Jesus. What great assurance. What confidence in eternal life. That I just want to be with Jesus. Death becomes so irrelevant. It's not something to be feared. It's an incidental moment. When we step from time into eternity, it's a transition to something greater because the assurance that Jesus gives diminishes everything that this world or everything that life might bring against us. He is far greater. And it is through his word that he strengthens our faith, that he encourages us, that he fills us with hope, that he gives us peace, that we have confidence that we can trust him and be at rest in him. Well, following Jesus's honor response, the Jews came back with their disparaging attack. Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And yet you are saying, whoever obeys your word will never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And then this very disparaging, sneering statement in the form of a question, who do you think you are? Well, Jesus responds with what we call his glorification rebuttal. If I glorify myself, it means nothing. My father is the one who glorifies me. Though you don't know him, I know him. And then he spoke this statement. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. And then he returned to his flow I do know him and obey his word. 
And then he said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, with these words, Jesus is speaking. Words that really capture what he has said throughout the last several chapters, five, six, seven, and now eight. And four things that Jesus has said throughout the chapters that, that are consistent in their thought, that are captured by these several verses that Jesus speaks. First of all, Jesus did not seek his own glory. And he did not do anything on his own. Everything that Jesus did, he did in union with the Father. Jesus would say in chapter 5, I don't do anything on my own. I watch what the Father is doing. And then I do it. Jesus would declare, I don't speak any words on my own. I hear what the Father says to me. And then I speak. Jesus never acted independently of the Father. He never sought any gain for himself. He never sought any glory for himself. Everything that he did had one goal in mind. To glorify the Father. Oh, that you and I would live in that way. Everything that we do having just one goal and one purpose. I want to glorify God. Secondly, all of his glory comes from the Father. Jesus never sought the praise of anyone. He never sought the affirmation of anyone. All of his glory came from the Father. Jesus is so oriented to the Father's glory. And therefore, God gives him glory. That glory being the misunderstood glory of the cross when Jesus is lifted up. The Apostle Paul captured it well for us when he wrote to the Philippian church. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, hallelujah, therefore, because he became obedient to death on the cross, because that was the Father's will, because in doing so, he was glorifying the Father and fulfilling the Father's purposes. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, Jesus did everything to the glory of the Father. Therefore, the Father glorified him. And the glory that comes to Jesus returns to the Father. 
You know, in the passage of Scripture that we were reading last night when we gathered for prayer there in 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, rather, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is praying for the Thessalonians. And I, I pray this so that at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will be glorified in you and you will be glorified in him. And that's the way that Jesus lived, so that the Father would be glorified in him and he would be glorified in the Father. The third thing that Jesus states here that is captured in these four chapters is that the people didn't really know God, even though they claimed him as their God. That was a common Old Testament theme that God spoke, such as in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 3 and Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 8. And these people claim me as their God, but they don't seek me. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. When they speak and they prophesy, it's not in my name. And they speak on their own. The ox knows its master, but Israel does not know me. And because they rejected the one and only who has seen God, they were in reality rejecting God because no one has seen God at any time except God, the one and only. John chapter 1 and verse 18. And then fourthly, Jesus both knew God and obeyed him. He would say to his disciples in private, John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said it in response to what the disciples had been saying to, to him and their response to his words about where he is going. And he points back to himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he is the one and only through whom we may know God. There is no other way to know God apart from Jesus. There is no other way to have a revelation of God apart from Jesus. He is the one and only way. Well, the Jews come back with a third demissive attack. You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Yeah, right. Goes along the lines with their response. Who do you think you are? Come on, how can we take you seriously? You're not 50 years old. Actually, Jesus was probably about 32, 34 years at this point. And yet you say that you have seen Abraham, sure. The Passion Translation reads like this. What are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old yet. You talk like you've seen Abraham. The Message Bible you're not even 50 years old, and Abraham saw you. The New Living Translation. You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? Well, when Jesus responds to their dismissive 
attack. It is with a revelation declaration. Very truly. And here's the third amen in this passage here in chapter 8. Amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. Before Abraham was, I am. That is the most glorious, most incredible revelation that Jesus has given. As we read throughout the Gospels in his public ministry, Jesus makes many I am statements. And we've already seen earlier in John where Jesus made an I am statement that was clearly reflective of the statement that God had made in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses questioned God and said, who shall I tell them is sending me to give them this message of deliverance to speak on their behalf to Pharaoh? And God responded by saying, you tell them, I am that I am has sent you. And that was regarded by the Jews as the supreme declaration of who God is. And Jesus takes possession of it as God, the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The one who was the word in the beginning with God and who was God. The one through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that has been made. The one who is the light of the world and the water of living life. The one who is the only way, the only truth. In a sense, Jesus had set this conversation up. He had set this moment up. Again, as we said earlier, he's like a brilliant cross-examining defense attorney. Bringing their witness to a point of being discredited. But Jesus had, had already declared that they were not Abraham's true offspring because they didn't accept him. But yet he came back and he used their claim to be Abraham's offspring. And he said, I tell you, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. How could you have seen Abraham? Before Abraham ever was, I am. The four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4 worship the one who sits upon the throne continuously declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who evermore shall be. That phrase, who was, who is, and evermore shall be, can be summed up with this, I am. God is present in every moment of time, past, present, and future. God does not exist on a linear chronological timeline like you and I. God is. God always is. At this moment, God is as much in existence now as he was 
billions of billions of billions of years ago in eternity past. God already exists in all of his fullness in eternity future. He always is. And Jesus is claiming that same revelation of himself before Abraham was, I am. Well, when did Abraham see the day of Jesus and rejoice in it? Commentators differ on when exactly that might have been. And most then come to agree that as Abraham went along, he was experiencing revelation after revelation from God. The promises that God was making to him. That prophetically he saw ahead and saw the one who would be his seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But I think that there are two distinct moments when Abraham saw the day of Jesus. One was when God solidified his covenant with Abraham. Abraham was to take a sacrifice and cut it in pieces and then arrange it. And it was a typical manner of making sacrifices in Abraham's day and those sacrifices then being used to make covenant between two parties. And Abraham fell into a slumber and there appeared this image of a smoking fire that made its way among the pieces. And here was God making his way among the pieces that Abraham had cut out and laid there on the ground. And Abraham sees this representation of God making his way among those pieces. And when covenants were made in that way, the party that walked among those pieces was saying, let this happen to me and to my children if I ever fail and break covenant with you. Let me be cut to pieces. And Jesus came. He came as God's son, but he came as our substitute. And he who had no sin took our sin upon himself. He took our covenant breaking as his own. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and he was beaten and chastised for our peace. We failed and broke covenant and it was him who was cut to pieces. Abraham's seed. Remember that the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Galatians, said that the phrase is not seeds, but seed, meaning one. And there is another moment when Abraham's faith is tested and God tells him to take Isaac, his only son, and go to a place that he will show him and there to sacrifice Isaac. And before they part company with the servants, Abraham said to them, you wait here until I and the boy come back to you. And scripture tells us in the New Testament 
that Abraham was convinced in his heart that God who had fulfilled the promise to give a son was able to raise that son back to life. And so the two of them went off to the mountain. And on the way, Isaac asked his father, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Abraham responded, God himself will provide son. And there on Mount Moriah, the altar is built and Isaac, a type of Jesus Christ, willingly submits to his father, binding him and laying him upon that altar. Abraham raises his knife and the angel cries out, Stop, now I know that you really fear God. And Abraham looks over and there is a ram. It had to appear appeared instantly. Its horns were caught in a thicket. It would not have been quietly just waiting there. It would have been trying to free itself. God himself had provided. But something greater had taken place. And God's covenant with Abraham was reaffirmed that through him, through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And again, the Apostle Paul declaring that Isaac, the son of promise, pointed towards Jesus, the son of God, the seed of Abraham, the one who would be the fulfillment of God's promise and bring blessing to all the nations through his saving work. And Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. And then he could declare, before Abraham was, I am, so that Abraham could be. Before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus in the fullness of deity would go to the cross for us. It would not have mattered if any of the other of the Virgin Mary's sons had died for our sins. It would have accomplished nothing. In fact, that son could not have paid for his own sin. It was only because Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit, containing the fullness of deity in bodily form, having alone the sufficiency to make atonement for our sins on the cross. It was only he who could reconcile us to God. One who is, I am. One who is fullness of deity. One who is, was, and evermore shall be. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Well, at these words, the reaction of the Jews is to pick up stones and to kill him. In his eyes, he has committed the ultimate blasphemy. But in reality, it was they who were in the ultimate wrong. Many commentators see this image of Jesus slipping away, being hid from them and slipping out of the temple grounds. 
as, as being a very significant moment. In, in the original language, there is this idea of a divine act in Jesus hiding himself. The I am veils their eyes. They can't see him. They can't find him. And although nothing has happened to their eyesight, they can't see him. Remember that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter and in chapter 3 spoke about the veil being over the eyes of people. And in chapter 4, the God of this world blinding the eyes of people to the glory that is in Christ. He hid himself and he slipped away. And many commentators see in that the Old Testament picture of the glory of God and the presence of God leaving the temple. And Jesus had given them opportunity to respond to who he is. He had told them that unless they believed in him, they would die in their sins. He had offered to them a full and complete revelation of who he is and the invitation to live forever by accepting his word. But they would not. Their eyes were veiled, their hearts were hardened. The tragic thing is that there are many people to whom we will present the message of salvation. And they refuse to accept, they refuse to believe. And yet still you and I must be faithful to tell everyone of who Jesus is. Their response is up to them. Our responsibility is to make him known. Jesus had made himself known. They chose instead to try to kill him. Later, their efforts would succeed. The apostle Peter would declare, you killed the author of life. But God glorified him. Hallelujah. And he rose from the dead. And you and I tonight, oh, thank God that he has shown his light into our hearts. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, but God who said, let there be light, has shined his light into our hearts. The scales have been taken off of our eyes so that we can see who Jesus is. And our hearts have been captivated by him. And we love him, though we have not seen him, as Peter wrote. And we look forward to seeing him. And we rejoice in him. And live every day with expectation that we will receive the goal of our faith. To stand in his presence. To see him face to face. And to be with him forever and ever. As I speak those words to you, I think of the words of Jesus. As the revelation ends in Revelation 22. And Jesus speaks. And he said, let those who are doing evil continue to do evil. Let those who are doing righteous continue to do righteous. And know this, I am coming soon. The spirit and the bride say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That is what the spirit of God is saying. You know, you and I have been hearing that 
our times of worship. The Spirit speaking that Jesus is coming soon. And there, anyone who is truly of the bride of Christ lives with that anticipation. Not for this life, not for this world. But to do the will of the Father like Jesus. And then to see Jesus face to face. May you and I have such a clear revelation of him. And have such a burning desire to see him. That our hearts are saying tonight. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to see with my eyes you who are the most wonderful, the most glorious one, the one who is my Savior. Amen. This is the most wonderful passage, isn't it? And I pray that as we have looked at it together tonight, that the Holy Spirit has taken you far beyond what my human words could ever take you. That you have seen this glorious revelation of Jesus. That your hearts are more captured by him than ever before. And that you truly are living to see him face to face. Amen.